This is the first episode of season 12 of The Trust Show and the first episode of 2024. And I decided to start with a bang. This episode will blow you away. Today's topic is artificial intelligence avatars and how we will talk about them is in the trust aspects. We're seeing the proliferation of deep fake in both voice and visual. Processing power and algorithm complexity reach such a level that you can see a video of someone you know do or say something you didn't expect from them, except that it's not really them. It's an AI avatar rendering. That's how you use it for evil. How about using it for good? How about creating an AI video of yourself that is customized for anyone you send it to without having to re-record a separate video for every person? Just like CRM allows you to create customized email messages. In this episode, my guest is Jill Schiffelbein. I should say Dr. Jill Schiffelbein. Jill is an innovative AI researcher, a partner and chief experience officer at Render, a startup specializing in producing hyper-realistic avatars and being a one-stop shop for digital likeness creation and management. Jill is also the founder and president of the Dynamic Communicator, Inc., a boutique communication strategy firm. She's about to release her fourth book, Business Communications for Dummies. Yes, it's one of those yellow and black books. Jill is also a friend of mine, and I've known her for about seven years now. But before we start the episode, Jill wanted to say something. You're about to meet my human counterpart, the real Dr. Jill Schiffelbein on The Trust Show. And when she's with host Yoram Solomon, she'll be talking about technology like me, a hyper-realistic avatar, and if I'm an AI communication technology that can be trusted. The real Jill wanted to show me off a little bit first, so she rendered this video for you all to see. But now, I think she wants to be back on stage, so I guess I'll turn it over to the real humans to get started. Are you blown away? Jill actually rendered this avatar by typing into a screen right in front of my eyes. It took less time to create this video than it took for you to watch it. So now, let's go to the show, right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And we're back, and we're back with Dr. Jill Schiffelbein. So first of all, congratulations, Dr. Jill Schiffelbein. Thank you. You know, doing it a little later in life was actually a wise decision for me. I know it's not for everybody, but I'm glad I did. I know. That was the same for me. I, the first time I signed up for the, uh, uh, for the PhD program, I woke up one morning cold sweat, realizing I'm leading a $100 million business unit with 89 people. Two young girls, what am I thinking about? I got off the program later in life. I got back uh, to get mine. But I know how exciting it is at the end of your dissertation. And I watched your dissertation defense and I read your dissertation. So watch out. I know. I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm ready. So, you know, 
First of all, I think you proved one thing right, and that is to have a good dissertation, it doesn't have to have 348 pages. You have a no. relatively <laughs> short one, but it's really a good one. No, thank you. I was very, the program I went to at the University of South Florida is an executive uh, doctorate in business program. And what I really liked about it is your dissertation, number one, it had to be practice focused. So if you didn't have a practical business application context, you couldn't move forward. And then the other thing was they were more concerned about the results and the implications for practice, of course, being well supported by theory, but uh, page length, unlike my master's program was not an issue here. So it was great. Yeah. And you know, the, uh, first of all, the, uh, the reason I'm interviewing here on, on this, or we're talking about this here in this uh, show is this, this is obviously the trust show where we talk about trust. And more specifically, I recently started my own secondary, well, it's more than secondary, uh, research, uh, on trust premium and specifically the use of trust and the importance of trust in the sales process. And your dissertation was really focused on that. And so the first question that I have to ask is, tell me why. Why did you decide that that's going to be your topic? What's really interesting to me, and it, I just need to rewind back a little bit so people really understand, at least to me, the gravity of the topic in my world, which is at the intersections of communication, education, and technology is where I've found my home. And even when I try to kind of veer away from it, I'm like, no, I'm not a techie person. It, it always comes back around. And in the very early 2000s, so um, over 20 years ago, 2003, I actually built my first online course. And the passion for that um, and that was very early back in the online course days, like incredibly early. And the passion for that came from like, I'm from a small town in Kansas, you know, grew up in the eighties. And if I wanted to learn something, I didn't have video options. There weren't tutorials. There weren't remote classes. It was, if you were lucky enough to find a tutor, great. Or you go to the library and you try to read through books. And for me, it came from art. I loved, still do love art. And I was actually pretty talented as a little kid. Like my mom very much encouraged it. My dad as well. I won national competitions, was doing all these things. And finally they found a painting teacher in my little hometown in Kansas. Eight months later, she moves. So this talent cannot be fostered. I feel just let go. And, you know, I move into other things as I, you know, age and find gratification in different things. And when I started to learn about distance learning, and the first thing was like the correspondence courses, right, where people go and they sit in this big room, and then they're streaming, uh, you know, through some type of connectivity, this thing, I realized that this could change the game for people based on geography, based on where they live, based on physical abilities, based on do they need a caretaker, do they have to take care of kids, whatever it may be, right? So I became invested in creating the best online course experiences so that people in any of these situations didn't receive any less of a quality of education from, uh, you know, being in their situation. And at the end of the day, it was all rooted in communication, which is what I did study, what I got my master's in, all of that. So, you know, fast forward to 2009, first live virtual event, fast forward to being an early adopter of Zoom and being in on, you know, early there. The technology that I researched here is that same passion because I believe it has the ability through what I call a hyper-realistic avatar. Um, it's basically a custom avatar. It's your digital likeness. It's your digital clone to be able to help people um, provide more accessibility, provide more personalized and customized experiences for people, provide choice to their customers, and really democratize the video production process and create a more level playing field in many ways. And 
that's why this was so important to me. You know, I, I should add to uh, our audience, our listeners, that uh, we've known each other for, I think, about seven years. So if I remember correctly, it was 2016. When you came, we were both members of the National Speakers Association. Although it sounds so much better when I just say we're both members of NSA and leave it at that. <laughs> but uh, you came in and you talked about videos. You did a lab. You talked about videos. You talked about classes. I have to tell you that my first online course I created as a result of you coming to here to Texas. And oh my gosh. Of course, then I learned that you don't use a 720p uh, or a 720, yeah, it was a 720p camera uh, on, on top of your computer. You need to use something a little better. But uh, tell me, so you told us a, a little bit about uh, why you did the study, mm -hmm. but how about you know, there is a question. I asked you if there are any great questions I can ask you. I like this one. Yeah. Why are people hesitant to trust AI-generated communications? What's really fascinating about this idea of trust, especially in this world of AI, right, and generative AI and everything else is, uh, number one, there's a whole lot of media fluff about it because, you know, titles and headlines get clicks and a lot of people don't read beyond that. So they make assumptions based on what they read. So that does spur a huge trust issue. But I think the big thing is, is because it's different. So let me give you an example, right? Like, you know, ChatGPT recently turned one. Right. And so if I were to start talking about, you know, this revolutionary technology where humans now have the possibility to portably transmit information in a new form from one person to another. And before they were like sanctioned at a desk or sanctioned with certain supplies, but now they can, you know, pull information and be able to communicate it quickly. And maybe it has like a refillable source of potential so you can keep communicating and keep communicating with it. And if I keep explaining this in this way, it's kind of esoteric, but most people assume that you're talking about ChatGPT, but the same similar phrases were actually used in an 1827 pen, uh, you know, patent for the refillable ink reservoir in a pen. And just like that technology and every other communicative technology throughout human history, it has been met with both awe and fear. It has been used for both good and ill. And I mean, hello, printing press, right? Can we talk about the uproar? <laughs> that was the printing press. So when we look at this, this is just, we're repeating history as history is wont to do, right? We're humans. We have certain biological imperatives, uh, you know, survival among them. And anything that threatens our known concept of the world is going to cause questions. What most people who have fear on this or a lack of trust in this are doing, though, is they're not actually examining other areas in their life that they probably use every day that they have assumptive trust. For example, when I get an email from you, Yorm, I believe and trust that it is you who wrote it. I have really no way to verify that, right? right? It's coming from your email. It's coming from your domain. It's coming from that. You could have had a team member write it. You could have had many people write it on your behalf or someone could have hacked into your account. I don't know. The only time I would be suspicious, and I think this is for most people, is if something seemed off in your communication pattern. That would be the time where suspicion would arise and you might verify at that point in time. Now, with AI technologies today and generative AI, people, instead of the trust but verify mentality, like I would be talking about here, it's uh, let's question, 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 where we're humans. Any AI output is based on human input. So whatever you put into it dictates 
a variation of what you're going to get out. So we need to kind of check our trust, uh, immediate gut reactions at the curb when it comes to this stuff and really understand why people may be using it and what the intent of using the technology is for. Yeah. And you know, this, uh, it, it kind of resembles the opening of my, my third, my last TED talk, uh, when I talked about chat GPT in that TED talk and it, it's, we have this, this allergic reaction to any new technology it was calculators in schools right now they're blocking chat gpt and and i tell my students in in college just go ahead and use it so you know in your dissertation you said i i saw the defense i read the dissertation and you mm -hmm. said something that i i found very refreshing you said well you know i'm supposed to be able to reject null hypothesis which is you know a whole thing the the, the way you 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 don't actually prove things but you reject the the opposite uh mm -hmm. so you were not able to reject the null hypothesis for five out of six but you said, I don't care. I still got a lot from it. Tell us more about mm -hmm. it. What did you get out of that research? What, what are your conclusions that, that made you think, oh, that's interesting? You know, I... To, to rewind a little bit, um, and I know you'll post the link to the recordings and everything for anyone who's curious on this to go down that rabbit hole, or you can always just reach out to me, everyone. But this uh, this research of hyper-realistic avatars, like you know, you saw earlier in the introduction part, when um, if you were watching, and if not, you just kind of heard it. Um, this is it's a hyper-realistic version of self to the extent that when people watched a two-minute video of Avatar Jill on a white background, 67% when asked a semi-leading question, did you just watch a video of a real human or a hyper-realistic avatar representing a real human? 67% said it was a real human still. So this is how realistic we're talking about. And it's not People would say, oh, well, they weren't paying attention. Well, no, actually, that group scored the highest on the quiz after watching the video. So, no, they were yep. <laughs> paying attention. So, this is the realism level we're talking about. And my big idea was, okay, can this be an efficacious communication channel or in non-geeky words, is this thing effective, right? Can we use it to communicate information? And I couched it within a sales context, which we can definitely talk about more if we want, but directly to the heart of the research, I asked um, in looking at three different versions of this video, I created a script that was an informational learning tip for salespeople. My audience was salespeople, 290 verified participants at the end, which is a, a very decent sample size. And we did this with both survey and biometrics, where I was watching them watch me and have analytics on biometric algorithms to measure engagement, facial expressions, eye motion, et cetera. So those three groups were Real Jill, Avatar Jill, and Avatar Jill who says that she's an avatar at the beginning, right? And of course, me thinking like, this is going to be the most trusted version ever because man, she did her job right and said what she was. Exact same script, exact same look and feel. I created the human video the same day as I created the avatar using the same outfit, same hair, everything. So it is, you can't tell them apart if I take screenshots. You're going to be hard pressed to pick out the real Jill. It would be a guess. So 
They watched this video and then they completed surveys. I tested information retention. That was one of the variables. And that's essentially what did you score on a quiz after watching? I tested engagement, which was on a domain independent engagement scale that has been um, studied extensively, uh, corroborated through factor analysis and all these geeky things for anyone who needs that to trust me here. And if you don't, then yeah, just know <laughs> it's geeky. It works. Um, and then the third one is the uh, Munster Epistemic uh, Trust Inventory, which was actually created to measure a layperson's a trust factor on especially digital content. So literally the perfect scale existed for measuring trust in this form. And the idea was that, you know, there's going to be some differences and there weren't. There were no statistically significant differences anywhere except in information retention between Avatar Jill and Avatar Jill that disclosed she was an avatar. And then when you look at the biometric data from that, it's because the assumption is anyway, I can't read their minds, but based on their eye movement patterns, they're like, wait, this is an avatar. And you're focused on kind of looking at this uh, holistically and not paying as much attention to the content. Yes. And, uh, you know, when, when I looked at the videos that you use, that the props that you use, the first one, I immediately said, okay, this is the avatar. Why? Be but that's the, I had an advantage over your, your participants because I know Jill and Jill uses her hands a lot when she talks. And then I look at the real Jill and you made sure that you did not use your hands. So they look relatively same. And I thought, well, that is actually another avatar, but, but it wasn't, it was you. So while I knew the first one was an avatar, it was based on something that I knew that others didn't. And, and with the second one, you didn't help me. So those were, those were amazing prompts, by the way, video prompts. And, and I yeah. hope your, my audience, I hope that, that you'll have time to actually look at those videos because they are amazing. And in the dissertation, you actually described the process of creating them. But, but I have to tell you, it is amazing. Let me ask you another question. Uh, you focused on B2B as opposed mm -hmm. to B2C. I would have thought that this would work more in B2C. Why, why did you choose B2B? And it may. I don't know. I mean, this is this technology is in its infancy. It's still in this, you know, innovator state. And with that, um, you know, you're still at really low adoption rates. I have been in this space for over two years, which makes me like an OG in this technology, which blows my mind, right? Um, you know, I was a very early a custom avatar adopter. And why I personally focused on B2B is, I mean, one for the program, I needed to have a specific context, but most of my clients um, have B2B sales. Um, and they are working and doing this in a way where what I find in B2B is number one, it's less research than B2C. So that was attractive to me. I wanted to contribute to, you know, the knowledge base and business to business sales more from that perspective, but also what I find in B2B sales, and this is a challenge that many of my clients have, um, that is different from B2C sales is that, we know if you like zoom out and look at hundreds and hundreds of studies of what makes people buy, what keeps people loyal, how you retain business, how you get referrals, how you get elected, all of these different things in different fields, personalization, customization, and choice are three key factors that continually emerge in the top three, five, and 10 in hundreds of different studies. And so looking through these things in B2B sales, 
if you're, you know, if you're a, a medical device salesperson, let's right. say, right, and you're selling directly to a doctor or directly to a hospital administrator, that is B2C. You already have a highly personal relationship and communication is most likely coming from you the majority of the time. Now, doesn't mean this couldn't help you, but why I chose B2B aside from my own personal interests is that in B2B sales, what you often have is let's take the, the travel industry, for example. So let's take a cruise line that it has regional sales directors. These regional sales directors are responsible for getting in and educating agencies and travel agents about the product so that then they can sell it to their customers, right? Which is the ultimate traveler. So you have a B2B to an NC. With this, brands, large cruise lines, small cruise lines are creating a ton, like I mean, plethoras of training and content so that they can get advisors up to speed because most cruise lines still, their business from advisors will trump their business from direct to consumer market because it's, it's a scalability thing. It's how they get out. And what's really interesting about this and growing these markets is you have all this content coming out to advisors from hundreds of travel partners all the time, right? How do you differentiate yourself by personalizing that communication, by customizing that communication? So instead of, hey, Cruise Line XYZ just released a new training on the new ship that we're launching next year, it's let's say I'm your regional sales manager, you know, talking to you. I'm like, Yorm, I'm so excited because, you know, our line has just announced this new ship. There's tons of new training information in the portal. You may have gotten an email about it from the company at large, but I wanted to make sure personally that you knew this because especially for your audience of XYZ client base, this ship is really going to meet their needs. For clients, X, you know, WIT, not as much, but I encourage you to look especially at, you know, section two of the training because I think you'll find that the most useful. Well, now as an advisor, I'm like, that was targeted to me. It was personalized. It told me what to focus on and it put sense in my context. Now, as a B2B sales rep, you can't do this with all 150, whatever of your accounts, but you can create one script that has a field for name, a field for what part you want them to watch, a field for what audience it will hit, a field for what it won't work for. You put that data together, you merge it, mail merge style into multiple scripts, and bam, you have personalized communication directly targeted to everyone to increase the likelihood that they are going to consume the content. Because we know from science that we not only do business with people we know, like, and trust, as is appropriate here, but we also learn differently from that and we take actions differently from that when it's communicated from a source. So if you can get your soul presence out there to reinforce the relationship. I give the analogy when I talk a lot that it's the same thing as, you know, we meet once in person and then we friend each other on social media. It can be years between when we see each other, but because of that social presence relationship, even though it's not you directly, I am able to still learn more about you and feel presence in a way that when we do meet again and reconnect, the relationship is stronger than it was when we started. This is the same idea. Right. And, you know, in my model, in my trust model, the thing that accelerates trust, one of the things that accelerate trust is, is what I call intimacy. And intimacy is when you stop communicating via email or just the written word and you start adding the tone of voice and you add body language, uh, facial expressions. And uh, that, that significantly accelerates uh, the building of trust. Now, the tools to customize the email, for example, today, they, they exist. I mean, every CRM system, uh, almost every email client that's a little more than, you know, just your web-based Gmail account, everything mm -hmm. beyond that allows you to put all those fields. But if I had to think about 
every customer recording a separate video for them. I mean, that would you would never be do unbelievable. And, and now you're making it customizable. Let me ask you another question. Uh, how about interactive? I mean, th those videos are pretty one way, but how about the interaction? D did you think about that? Uh, in terms of live real-time interaction yes. or, okay. So for live real-time interaction um, with this technology, the speeds of generation aren't there yet. Now you can get some generation with like a cartoon kitschy looking avatar, but to me that doesn't serve, it doesn't serve the same purpose. And, you know, there are different studies in education and learning, um, things with chatbots, et cetera, with um, what is called embodied technology. And is it the embodiment of a human or some random figure, or is it the embodiment of self? And those are two very, very different things, a separate rabbit hole. But with that, you know, we're looking at right now and what's really exciting. So what's coming in the new year is actually we are getting closer and closer to having that interactive agent up. And we've um, started testing some different technologies that make it happen. The challenge that uh, we're having is and what is important on, you know, to us at Render, um, you know, it's digital likeness. And so if it's digital likeness and it's customized to an individual, I don't want it pulling responses from a generalized database. The value in that and the value in conversations and intimacy, as you call it, is really being able to pull from a database that is personalized to your own style of language. You put my avatar with something generated from ChatGPT, it is like, it's already technology layered on unedited, written, generated technology. It's not going to be a good outcome. But instead, as I'm privately training a GPT model with every book I've written, every article I've written, the recordings and transcripts of every podcast I've been on, the model can start to learn my nuances and language and use those to communicate back so that um if everything continues on path is going to be coming in 2024 yeah and you know it's it's really a matter of uh, the evolution of technology the two probably most uh important qualities or, or technology parameters are processing power and storage storage accessibility uh and, and that was by the way the end of my my third ted talk uh when when i said that right now uh if you consider the number of neurons we had in our head and the number of uh, transistors you have in uh, i think i used the apple air 2 uh, processor mm -hmm. um you have or a2 processor uh you are about i think three years away from getting to the point where a thousand dollar laptop would have as much uh brain power as you do so it's really just and, and this is something that i've seen overall with uh, with technology so th the fact that you know that the issue right now is latency which means that tomorrow it's not going to be latency anymore mm -hmm. uh that that opens a lot of uh, opportunities the the interesting thing i think is that um you know i i don't know if you're familiar with albert morabian uh, i think it was either uc i think it was ucla he published a book in 1971 called the silent messages that, that's where the 738 rule comes from which is one of the most misquoted uh, rule in history but and and you know if you look at the the study that he the two studies that he conducted in 68 and 69 you can challenge that as well and and by the way those were studies that are very similar in terms of what you do to to what you have done of course without mm -hmm. avatars ai because we're talking 1968 uh, 69 mm -hmm. 
But he said an interesting statement in his uh, introduction to the book. He said, when our words contradict the silent messages contained within them, people, others, mistrust what we say. So do you think that the use of avatars, even if as you use them there, and I think that the results, the fact that there were no significant dis uh, differences between the different three different avatars would suggest the answer is yes. But do you feel that it conveyed body language, tone of voice, even though it was artificially intelligently generated, that is consistent with the words there? Yes and no. Great. So let me... That's, I see that you got your first lesson <laughs> in being a PhD. You answer questions <laughs> with yes and no, and it depends. That's the second level. Yeah, I mean, let me rewind to yes. the evolution of this technology just to give listeners kind of an understanding of how it's evolved. And this is something that unless you've been in the space for over two years, like I have, you, you're not aware. So when I first did this, and so um, the company that I'm a partner in Render, we, um, I was actually paid customer number two in the company. I was the second person to jump on board at a much higher price point than what we're at now and say, yes, I am going to do this. And at this point, they were kind of, you know, just, uh, you know, my the co-founders, John and Moki, were playing around with it and like, can, can this be a thing? We think this can be a thing. And I'm like, heck yeah, it can be. I'm jumping in. And I was the one, um, the customer who was using it and getting results from it. And if you rewind it, it makes sense because from a communicative strategy lens, that's where my expertise is. Blend it with technology. Bam, we have some magic. And so looking at that, what we had then was we wanted to be a best in class aggregator because there's about four major players right now, maybe five emerging on the scene in terms of who can produce a video avatar and their levels of customization of those avatars uh, vary. But what we found is one who was really good at video, like the voice was horrible. And it was so, so, so robotic. Or you couldn't even get your own voice. You had to pair it with a generic female voice or a generic male voice. And it wasn't ideal. So we built a platform where we can take best in class, whoever is on video or for whatever need, right? So if latency is a need, there's some that process faster than others. So we can adapt that best in class audio and then merge them together. Over two years ago, this was a manual process. We would generate the video file, generate the audio file, and then video editors would put it together knowing that the technology would advance, right? Like John and Moki had the foresight for this. And, um, you know, then the use cases came on and I got invited to be part of the team. We saw then that it got down to, uh, instead of, you know, a day perhaps to turn something around, because of course, as a startup, you're not employing a team of a hundred people that can just whip these things out left and right. We got it down to hours within a year of me being there. Um, you know, during business hours, it was down to hours. This was a pretty big improvement. And again, if you're wanting to send out these personalized emails, like, yeah, I can wait, you know, a day to get all of these. I just plan in advance. Well, now we're down to minutes and there's no human involvement in it um, from our team's end. Uh, our involvement is on improving the app, keeping the APIs integrated well, making sure everything's running smoothly and all of that, which is not a, a light lift by any stretch of the imagination, but we are now down to minutes in getting this stuff out and paired together. So that's in two short years. In two short years, we have gone from only being able to speak one language to if you wanted a second language or a third language, the only way you could do it was from a generic voice, right? Generic male one, generic male two, et cetera. To now in my voice with my intonations, I can speak fluently 28 different languages, which opens up the door for so many communicative possibilities, especially for global businesses. 
this is a lot of development in a short period of time. So when we're looking at this now, you ask about, you know, how accurate is it in terms of communicating that? Because what I often say in trainings, uh, not on technology trainings, but human communication is you have your actions on one hand, you have your words on the other. And if they are not synonymous, people are going to watch and believe your actions more than they are your words. So you can have the best crafted message in the world, but it's not going to mean anything if your actions aren't on board with it. Right? right. So exact same thing to your point. With this, and this is one of the huge reasons that I believe disclosure that it is your digital likeness, disclosure that it is a hyper-realistic avatar, however you want to, you know, your clone, whatever you want to call it, I don't really care, but disclosure of it is hugely important to me. And it has been since day one, because as you said earlier, like I speak professionally for a part of my career and I am animated, like I'm animated even here. And yes, in the video, I toned down my animation, um, one, to have a more comparable sample because that was important, but two, the vast majority of people using this technology are not professional trained speakers. The vast majority of people using this technology are executives, are doctors, are salespeople who are not on stage theatrically in front of thousands of people. And so you have to adapt, uh, you know, to that audience. So with this, yeah, the intonation is getting a whole lot better. The AI technology is getting a whole lot better at pairing intonation with things. It's not perfect. It's not perfect at all. However, what I find with my own business, separate from the data, and we can go into the data on disclosure next if you want, is that as long as I am uh, transparent about what it is, nobody has a problem with it. Nobody has a problem with me communicating that way. Nobody has any issues. Nobody's coming back and saying that doesn't represent you well or that doesn't look like you because I'm forthright and honest about what it is up front. And I also like to put in a reason for why I'm using it. So while the real Jill is traveling abroad, while the real Jill is on stage right now, um, before you meet the real Jill in person, she wanted to send my her likeness to tell you of some of the things you can expect in this call, whatever it may be. There's always not only the disclosure, but a reason for that communication. But an interesting thing is that in your study, when I look at the results, specifically in the trust area, uh, mm -hmm. and I should say that you used a 14 uh, item scale. And first of all, uh, the numbers are pretty high in terms of, do you believe me, and the, the three different components of, well, that's not my trust model, that's somebody else's trust model. Uh, but, you know, you were getting 17 out of 20 on either one of them, 17, 16, 26 out of 30. So the level of trust was pretty high up there. But the difference, as you said, was was pretty small between uh, the avatar and the one where you disclosed. So I know that you and I and, and many other people, integrity is very important. The disclosure is very important. But your research actually shows that it doesn't, right? So it shows that from a statistical significant standpoint, there is no difference in trust in from a numerical measured sense, from a quantitative sense. Right. The caveat here, though, is in the qualitative sense. Yes. And so what I did in the study and just to kind of walk people through it after they watched the video, they did the quiz questions, they did the engagement scale, they did the trust scale, and then they were asked um, if they had just watched a real human or a hyper-realistic avatar of a real human. After that, the next screen told them what they watched. 
and introduce them to what a hyper-realistic avatar is, this technology, etc. And I asked one final question, which was, again, this is an audience of um, salespeople or people re uh, interested in gaining sales skills, right? To mimic, if you were sending an informational video out to a customer, for example, they would have some minor interest, at least in that product. So to mimic that, we capsuled that audience. With this, the results on that open-ended question are what really tell the story. And there's a lot that can go into this. So let me give you the data. And then if I can, um, want to contextualize it with some literature on some other technologies that kind of show a parallel historically to this. So when we do sentiment analysis, and sentiment analysis is basically where I, I put all of those open-ended text answers into you know a massive thing divided by the three groups and looking at okay so after i tell them what it is how do people feel about this right how are people you know maybe thinking about this what's in their mind and the question i asked was you know how do you see or not see you know this stuff being useful for use in a sales position or use in sales communication and what blew my mind here was that the people who watched real jill and then learned about hyper-realistic avatars were actually pretty dang positive about it, right? You know, in like 81-ish percent, right? But, but have they watched the here. avatar as well, or are they only... They, they um, could click on a video to watch it. It wasn't mandatory to watch it, but they were educated um, about it. So whether they watched it or not, um, I couldn't record that data with the software uh, that I was able to use for university guidelines. So... Alas, uh, another study in another uh, non-university setting where I can capture some of that data. Yes. But with um, with that too, 81% positive sentiment's really dang good. Like, I mean, anything above 50% when you're looking at aggregating a whole bunch of sentiment on text. I mean, something even neutral can be considered positive. Anything over 50%, you're like, all right, this is this is exciting. But then we go down that rabbit hole a little further and I ask the same question to the people who watched my avatar video and then found out that again, 67% thought it was real human. Then they found out that, um, well, you know, it's actually, uh, not, it's an avatar. We're talking plummeting like a 160 degree turn in sentiment to like 84% something negative sentiment. That's catastrophic to a business, right? I mean, catastrophic. Now, the third group that that disclosed that we know didn't score as well on the quiz, but still engaged and trusted at the same level as the other videos based on um, statistics, they were at 57% positive sentiment about use of this technology. So again, any like you'd be happy with that as a business. You'd be like, all right, so clearly I need to disclose. So the risk to business is now, okay, we know disclosure has some negative impacts. In my study, the negative impact was you retained less information. There's tons of studies in chatbots if we want to go into a lot of that trust literature, and I'll let you guide that discussion if you want to go there, that um, has varying um, impacts on trust and on results um, because of something, um, one of the factors called algorithmic inversion that we as humans uh, tend to have, and it's a form of bias. My thing is, though, I don't believe a business can afford to not disclose because the potential cost of non-disclosure way outweighs the potential cost of disclosing. Yes, and and I there's there's a whole different area that that I talk about often in uh, what happens when you find out because the the problem is 
if you can guarantee 100% they will never find out, then this is not a question. The thing is that they may at some point. And, and this is where disclosing up front versus disclosing after the fact versus it, it's not even, you know, and, and that's actually an interesting question. So you said disclosing up front, that was one of your three groups. Uh, we disclosed up front, this is an avatar. You're, you're watching an avatar. You know that up front, I'm not hiding anything from you. But then the second group where you had the avatar without it being disclosed, there's no issue until the moment you said you actually mm -hmm. watched an avatar, which in yep. this case, you said it to them, but in other cases, they would find out themselves, which I would guess mm -hmm. would be even worse. Yeah, the words duped, yes. fooled dishonest words like that came up regularly in those open-ended responses. And, you know, it, it, it was huge. And what's, what's funny is, you know, my, uh, one of my professors on my committee said, I've never been so excited to get so many failures to reject the null. But what it did is it caused me to actually go deeper into other data. And I don't know if I had found significant differences, I would have been, you know, writing those results, doing repercussions of those results, analyzing those results further, um, and not actually going in as deep to the sentiment. And so that uh, was, to me, that is probably the most significant finding in the entire study was that. Yes, and 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 it is, and and I think that uh, people really need to wake up. In uh, you're trying to fool someone, and you're assuming that they are fooled. Uh, I think that the interactivity part of this is going to be important. And you know, you you talked about the AI not being or or AI avatar specifically three dimensional or or visual avatar technology is not there yet to interact. But I can tell you, it's not there yet even in in text form. I, I just recently I received an email asking me to uh, uh, contribute a class, a course, a, a video course on uh, detecting wireless networks using whatever, I don't remember the name of the technology is, and, and they thought that based on my LinkedIn profile, I would be a perfect candidate for that, which is bull because there was nothing in my can in my profile that would suggest that. And my reply, I decided to you know be a little sarcastic. My reply was, uh, I would be happy to do that. Thank you for offering this. If I only knew what this technology really is. And I got a response to that, Thank you for agreeing. And here's the process. And I'm like, you completely missed mm -hmm. my answer here. And, and I think even that technology is not, uh, has not evolved yet, uh, as, as such. So let alone in, in a, in a, a visual, uh, instantiation. Uh, let me ask you a question. You talked about the company that you're a member in render, I believe, or a partner in. And can you tell us a little more about the company and, and the process itself of how you generate or how I could generate based on, you know, customized messages? How could I generate videos or how could you, the viewers, can generate it? Yeah, so the process to get your hyper-realistic avatar, right, this customized avatar, your digital likeness, um, does involve a, a first and once and only once a physical location experience, right? So we have on-demand studios around the United States um, and are constantly adding more cities and partners. And then we have studio events where we'll do special. I get to, you know, come in and do a speech and we have cocktails and, you know, it's lovely. And, uh, you know, I enjoy those nights too because we get to uh, play together as a team and uh, I love speaking. So it's great. Educating is my jam. 
But what you do is you have about 90 minutes. One time, 90 minutes in a studio, you know, hair, makeup, the whole works, um, even on gentlemen, because it does matter in the production of your likeness because it's at 4K quality and you really want to make sure things are accurate. So with that, you spend um, the first part doing your video cloning. So video cloning and vocal cloning are two very separate processes. And as I mentioned, we are able to, with what we produce from our studio, onboard you into any of the major video avatar cloning engines so and those are all yours it, no 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 we partner okay. so um synthesia colossian hagen did um you know out there we have agreements with them for using their video engine technology and we have api integrations into our application um which basically means for non-computer people it's like hey we can use this and we found a way to make it talk with best in class audio which who we're using now is um descript but we also play or sorry 11 labs we've played with descript um you know we still have integrations with others as well so with this, if you wanted to go out and do this on your own, um, and let's say you went to Synthesia first, there's a process that they use that's unique to them. Then you wanted to be like, hey, no, I heard the latency on Colossian is actually way less than Synthesia. So, um, you know, I'm going to go and do that. Well, you're going to have to go through a whole separate process and pay production a whole other time to make that happen. But our team has created a process where you come to the studio and we gather footage for you that can be used with any of the major players um, in the space right now. <laughs> you know, as of the end of 2023, of course, there may be more that come in and we may have to augment that um, going forward. We're talking so in December, so by February, it's all, all going to be different. You know, and that's I love about the space. It constantly changes, but what will never change about it, and this is where I think, you know, I've always found my home is the way humans interact and engage at a fundamental level, the way humans communicate at a fundamental level doesn't change. How it manifests in the channels we use change. And so I'm always applying this, you know, historical, well-researched, scientific base of knowledge to, you know, distribution and dissemination through new channels and technologies. So then after you do this video cloning, which involves a teleprompter, doing certain motions, doing certain audio recordings, repeating things, what we do is then take you to the audio studio. And in the audio studio, you are recording audio. And it only takes about 15 minutes, actually, in the audio portion. And we have different prompts that you use. You do different stories, uh, different things with your voice. And then from there, it's separately generated processes. It takes between one and two weeks, depending on the footage, um, a week to get it all cleaned up and packaged and everything else, because there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and then to get it generated. So in about two weeks, bam you have your uh, digital likeness and you log into our application to do your render appropriately named for the business. And that's what it's called when you render. What you do is you go in there. If you have multiple avatars, you select your avatar um, that pairs it with your voice. And then you type in or copy and paste any script you want. If you want to use GPT, we have an AI sidekick integrated. If you want to translate into one of 28 different languages, we have two click translation through AI that is what we have found to be the most accurate uh, translator AI out there. Um, we've tested it a lot, you know, nothing with AI is perfect. So it's obviously the onus is on the person to verify, but we get that out there. And then um, the next step is to select your background or a green screen. So if you want to do post-production editing, um, I love to take my avatar and make her small in a corner and have like visuals and yeah. graphics on the screen. Cause that's just better for, you know, consumption. Um, you can do that. Otherwise you can pick any background you want in a stock library, upload your own background. I custom brand, you know, like, the one for here and then you click submit minutes later 
you have your video. And then that video can be downloaded directly from your dashboard or every video is generated with a custom landing page that you can have call to action buttons, custom links, view tracking, all of those things to make it super easy to distribute that content. So it's really this like encapsulated solution. So 90 minutes physically of your time plus transport to and from a studio is all you need to really have this ability. And the use cases from our clients vary from people who are using it every single day to people who are using it as um, an insurance policy, unexpected illness, surgery, out of the office, travel delays, but they still need to convey their presence and stuff. They have this as a backup plan. I did not anticipate that use case. And I think it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I, my, my backup, by the way, if I, for some reason, illness or double booking or something, I can't make a keynote. Uh, I use uh, Matt Damon instead. I send him and people don't, can tell the difference, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so so you, it's always good to have a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, or at least that's the plan. I mean, I, yeah, I, I haven't missed the keynote yet, so I, I haven't called him to ask him to fill in. But um, so so far, the the setup, the the creation of the likeness initially would have to be something that's done in the studio, both the video and the audio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are options where you can do it at home on a webcam. The output is just not what, for a professional video, is not what you're going to be happy with. And, and if I have, which I do, a video studio up here in, in my house, uh, would that be helpful? Is that, Would that change and, and make me capable of doing ev everything here? You could do a lot of it here uh, at your place, depending on the camera quality um, and the frame rates, and then also the equipment with the technologies, the prompters, the video prompters, um, et cetera, for both video and text, because yep. there's two types of prompting that go on. Um, it, it could be done, but the coaching on how to get the best output is what's there. And that's that we know of. We have produced more custom avatars than, um, you know, now other companies have produced stock avatars, right? So they obviously were producing these to be a stock version, but actually custom avatars of people yeah. um, were in the hundreds, which is more than anyone that we know of out there right now. And I will tell you from when I did my first one to even my second, the difference was astronomical. The second to the third, insane. I'll do my fourth one um, in Q1 next year. And I'm just so excited to see how it turns out because I mean, we have learned a lot. Um, anyone who comes in through our studio process, you get, um, I've created lots of video training to get you prepared and mentally in the state for what you're doing. Because, you know, people especially who are used to speaking and using their hands a lot. Um, number one, a lot of people who use their hands a lot, actually there's no point in them using their hands. They just do it because it's a thing. Um, but the other thing is with the technology, well, I want my gestures to be specific because when I'm on stage, they're all specific it's AI technology. I can't guarantee that if you're holding up this, you know, I don't say there's five things to do. You can't do that with the technology. And I have no idea where these balloons are coming from. This is insane. Not for it's me. Great. <laughs> yeah. This new iOS, um, I just upgraded. So apparently there's something in the video there. So surprise. You probably said the words, congratulations. Let's see if you have. Yeah. Right. Again. Congratulations. Uh, you know, I haven't gotten the balloons before. That's really fascinating. So <laughs> in any event, um, you know, AI, you know, it's a form of, <laughs> predictive analytics right there is what's happening with motions. Uh, you got it wrong, Apple. You got it wrong there. But uh, with this... Don't it's say that. Really, yeah. <laughs> it's really the how you can actually do your gestures best to make a great avatar at the current state of the technology. 
And when people follow that instruction, they get really great avatars. Um, some people really want to push it and the avatar is good, but some of the gestures just really don't match up well with what they're saying. And they're like, well, I need a different gesture with this. I'm like, and this is exactly why we told you not to do that gesture in your training footage. <laughs> yes. And so if I understand correctly, I'll, I'll repeat that, that it starts with a session at the studio, maybe two mm -hmm. studios, one for visual, one for uh, audio. Same and, space. Yeah. And, and then you create my likeness. Uh, how long does that mm -hmm. typically uh, take uh, from? The whole process is about two weeks from once you're in the studio to when you can use it. So in two weeks, I'm getting this dashboard on your uh, mm -hmm. portal. And from that mm -hmm. moment on, I just type